As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Wow, what a, what a gift and, a, and an honor and a privilege it is to, to be with you all this morning in these days where it's difficult to travel and get out and visit churches and to be able to share with them what God is doing around the world. Uh, it is a real pleasure to be able to, to be with you all and to get to share a little bit about what we've learned in, in serving the Lord around the world and to, to call you as well to be a part of that and to be a part of, of that people that are serving God around the world. As I mentioned yesterday, um, one of the things that I'm particularly burdened with is the fact that we're not doing such a good job uh, when it comes to getting the gospel out. Now, there's still some 40% of the world that's considered unreached. And by that, we mean they're in areas of the world where the gospel is not flowing and the gospel is not going because there are not people going to those places to take the gospel. 40% of the world, 3.8 billion people. The area of the world that the Lord has particularly put on our hearts and that we are serving with Mission to the World uh, to take the gospel to is what we call the Muslim world or those that kind of live under the banner of, of Islam. That part of the world alone, 24% of the world, is living in darkness to the gospel. And there are few to no workers going to that part of the world and there are few to no churches. And so that's something that I am particularly burdened with as to why are we failing in this task? Why are we not going? Jesus told us, go make disciples of all the nations, all the people groups of the world. And every generation is responsible for their generation of people and they are to go into all the world and make disciples. And we as a universal church, are failing, and as our particular church, we are a part of that failure. So, what do we do about it? <laughs> That's enough bad news. Hopefully, um, hopefully, let's let's let me encourage you, and hopefully, the passage that we have this morning will serve as that encouragement for us as we think about 
How can we live differently? What can we do differently that we can be a part of what God is doing around the world? So in this passage, uh, it talks about the idea of being holy, royal priesthood. I'm going to assume you understand uh, that idea, the priesthood of all believers, that we are um, called to live as priests of God. It is something that was the plan in the garden. That, that God would create a people, a people of worshipers that would rule and reign over all the earth. It's a plan that we see articulated in the desert with Moses in Exodus 19. God reminds his people that if you will obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasure, treasured possession among all the peoples of the world. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was the plan, uh, even back in the desert. And then we see here in Peter, where he is showing us that through the Lord Jesus, that is the plan, that we would be a kingdom of priests. I hope that is part of your identity when you wake up in the morning that you understand that you are a holy, royal priesthood, and that what you do flows out of that. I'm going to also assume that you know that being a, a, a holy, royal priesthood means that you're to be holy, means that you're supposed to be set apart, that you're to be separate, that you're supposed to be different, that you're supposed to be throwing off those things that so easily entangle us and run the race that is set before us. So I'm not going to focus on these particular truths, but I want to, they are in our passage and they are foundational to understanding what I do want to focus on. And what I want to review, and I hope again that this is somewhat elementary for you. I hope it's not some rocket science new idea. Our gospel is not so complex that we need preachers and pastors to, to come up with new ideas and new revelations but to remind us of the fundamentals of our faith, the fundamental truths of, of who we are, whose we are, and out of that, how we are to live. So with this identity as a royal holy priesthood and with this ethic of being holy and set apart, how do we live day to day in this world? How can we be the community that God has called us to be. In, in order for me to understand this, I, I want to tell you about a friend of mine, Bishop Saliba. Bishop Saliba is a, is a bishop of the Syriac Orthodox Church living in Turkey, Mardin, Turkey. I've gotten to know him through a consultation that I've been a part of as we're trying to help restore the historic apostolic church in Central Asia uh, that we have a partnership with. Uh, one that had a seat at the Council of Nicaea uh, that has all but fallen apart because they have lost their priests. Not just like, oh no, where are our priests? We can't find them. Uh, during Soviet times, they were taken to the gulags and they have totally lost the leadership of the church and we're trying to help them restore the leadership of the church. But Bishop Saliba is a humble man. He is one committed to the faith uh, he, as I mentioned, he's a Syriac Orthodox believer. If, if you don't know about the Syriac Orthodox Church, they come out of Damascus or out of Antioch. 
which is where we were first called Christians. Um, Pastor uh, Bishop Saliva also likes to remind us that they pray the Lord's Prayer regularly, as Jesus did in Aramaic. It's an old historic church. And through his life, I've come to better understand what it means for me to be a priest. What does it mean to live out my life? And I think here in our passage, uh, particularly in verse 5 is what I want to focus on, is it gives us a glimpse of what it means for us to be priests, to be a royal, holy priesthood. What should our lives look like? And what we see here in this passage is that we are to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, as a culture that doesn't do a lot of sacrificing um, in the Muslim world where we have lived, we've uh, had the privilege of being able to go to the live animal market. And often when we go there, the, the butcher who's next to the live animals, whether it's a turkey for Thanksgiving or whether it's a lamb for the Easter supper, uh, they often ask us, is this for sacrifice? Sacrifice is a word that they use to mean basically butchering, but as unto the Lord to make a sacrifice. That's not so much a part of our Publix culture. You can't go to Publix and find a live chicken. Uh, sometimes you can find live fish or live lobsters, I guess, but uh, it's a little different. And many of you for Thanksgiving aren't going to go and look for a live turkey. You're going to go to Publix and buy your already slaughtered turkey to give thanks. So what does it mean for us to, to offer up spiritual sacrifices? What does it look like for us as Christians? Um, this, the passage was alluded to earlier, and I want to actually read it in length because I want you to have this vision because this idea of being royal, a royal holy priesthood is, starts in the garden, I believe, and we see it in the desert, and we see it in Peter, and we see it through the revelation that John receives, and I believe it is a part of our identity that we need to understand for all eternity. So listen to Revelation 5. John says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, hallelujah, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Why is that a big deal? Listen. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp 
and a golden and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. I wish I knew the tune, not that I could carry it, but it would be interesting. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe every language, every people, and nation. Why? And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is what we have been called to. This is who we are. And so what does it mean in that identity to offer up sacrifices that are pleasing to God? The first one we see here in this passage, uh, it's alluded to. It's a golden bowl full of essential oils. It's incense. We don't use incense. I told you about my brother uh, um, Saliba, uh, another good friend, another Syriac brother, Gabriel. He and I were in the country of Georgia, and he was wanting to buy gifts uh, for his friends back in Turkey. And the thing he wanted were were incense censers. They still use incense. Um, In our tradition, uh, we don't. We don't see it in the New Testament. But we see it here in the book of Revelation, that our prayers are one of our spiritual sacrifices. Do you view your prayers uh, in the image of incense, of going up in in an aroma that is pleasing to God? Your prayers, saints, your prayers are pleasing to God, and they're, they're in, a, in a golden bowl. And we read later in, a, in Revelation 8 that God then takes those and throws them into the earth, and he commissions his angels to do your prayers. There's a friend I have, a Muslim friend, in a remote village called Lahich. It's, uh, it's up in the mountains. You, you wouldn't believe that there's this village there. But it's a village of about 50,000 people. And I've, I've made friends with Riza. Riza is from an unreached people group, the, the Tat. Uh, he knows five languages. He knows his own language. He knows Azerbaijani Turkish, uh, he, which is the country he lives in. He knows Russian, which is the, the trade language. He knows uh, Arabic because he's a devout Muslim, and he knows Persian because that's where his people came from. But he's a coppersmith. He, he bangs on the drum all day. You walk into La Hitch and you hear, tink, 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 tink. They're, they're making copper water jugs, copper samovars. And they've been doing this for thousands of years. But in Riza's village, of of some 50,000 people, there are over seven mosques, seven places for the community to come and worship and to pray. Five times a day, you hear the call to prayer. Get up. God is great. Wake up, you sleepyheads. Come and pray. Give thanks and praise to God. That's a rough translation of what it says. But they're calling the community to pray 
five times a day. Now their prayers take five to 15 minutes to pray if you don't count the washing and the preparation. They physically turn toward Saudi Arabia, toward Mecca to pray. They are a people of prayer. You might have heard of Smith Wigglesworth, the Pentecostal revivalist in in England, uh, talking about how he prayed. He said, you know, I, I don't often spend more than a half an hour in prayer, but I never go more than a half hour without prayer. Christian, as you look at your life, what, what is your prayer life like? The Christian tradition has, has had various uh, suggestions on how we could pray. Early within the church, we, we recommended that people pray three times a day, the Lord's Prayer in morning, midday, evening. We know that the incense were a morning-evening thing that reminds us of that. What is your rhythm of prayer Do you as a family pray three times a day, giving thanks to God? I would encourage you to to think about the use of the Lord's Prayer and and to even read our Heidelberg Confession, or Catechism rather, that helps uh, outline and explain, or the Westminster Catechisms that help us to understand more deeply how to use the Lord's Prayer in prayer. For we offer up spiritual sacrifices through prayer. The second one I want to focus on is similar to it, uh, to prayer. Uh, we find it in the book of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews thirteen fifteen. 15. Uh, there, the writer of Hebrews says, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. The first or the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. And then we see it in our passage here uh, in, in, chapter, in uh, verse 9. May we proclaim the excellencies of him. Uh, within Arabic, uh, Allah shukur, that's actually Turkish, or, or um, hamdullah, is used in, in, in praise to God. And almost like many of my charismatic friends, it's like they use it every other sentence or so. It is so ingrained into their vocabulary that they are constantly giving thanks to God. Christian, as you offer up spiritual sacrifices, how often is thanks and praise to God on your lips? How do you encourage your family to have an attitude of thanksgiving and prayer and praise? Uh, we've, We've encouraged... Uh, folks, to, to keep a, a Thanksgiving journal, a journal of how God has, has provided. But another thing in this passage that I want to encourage you with, another aspect of this is, is that it's a megaphone of proclaiming God's praise and excellencies. It is an, a type of evangelism that is telling the world about how great God is. Now, many of us think about evangelism as being a propositional, confrontational call. And there are elements to that. There's a time in evangelism where you have to call people to repent and to believe. But in our part of the world, we find that a pre-evangelism is declaring the greatness of God. 
And if you as holy priests would go into your community, saturating your community with the excellencies of God, giving testimony to God's provision and care for you, how much easier would it be to call people to repent and believe? So I pray that we would become a megaphone of God's praise to the world. Also here in Hebrews uh, chapter 13, verse 16, right after this sacrifice of praise, we see another way that we offer up sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices to God. The writer of Hebrews writes, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Are we generous with what we have? Are we willing to to let go? Do we understand that we are but stewards of all of what God has given us? We see in, in the book of Philippians where Paul is commending them in the last chapter, chapter 14 or 4, verse 18, he's commending them for their gift, for their generous financial gift to his ministry. And he describes it as a fragrant offering, acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. That this, this was an act that was actually good for them, for them to do. And as priests, this is one of our spiritual sacrifices. To give of what we have. To, to let go of, not to accumulate. One of the most humbling examples of this for me Oops, sorry there, was when we uh, were seeking to engage um, a village that had no gospel witness to speak of that we knew of. We knew of no Christians in this particular village. Through one of our businesses missions projects where we were helping uh, people who did handicrafts in their homes, we met this family. And through meeting them and getting to know them and walking alongside them and celebrating uh, holidays with them. Uh, we also helped mobilize the church uh, to meet some of their needs. In the relationship with them, uh, Simu Zer, uh, the, the wife, uh, the main handicraft uh, producer, um, began to bear the burden of her family. Uh, her husband ended up getting put in jail. Uh, their death and mute son ended up being murdered, and she was left as a single mother to care for her two daughters. And so we were able to, to mobilize the church to, to provide some clothing uh, to her family. This is even before Simuzer came to faith, and praise the Lord, through the faithful sowing of the gospel, there's at least now one believer, one family in this village that gives thanks and praise to God through Jesus Christ. But it amazed me that she would receive, and she would receive clothes, and then she would give. She could have taken these clothes and easily sold them to others for money so that she could buy food, or she could have bartered. But as she received, she also gave. 
sharing of the physical earthly blessings that we steward generously is one of our sacrificial offerings acceptable to God. And it's so encouraging to hear about faith promise for you all. That is, um, as a church leader, um, uh, these are those moments where you're like, okay, God, I'm going to trust you on this one. I'm going to trust you by your spirit to move in the hearts of people and to move them to give. That's not easy to do. We want to say, you're required. This is what you have to do. We like to lay down the law more than, especially when it comes to encouraging our congregations to give. And so when it comes to missions to say, people of God, we want you to give over and beyond your tithe and your offering. That, that's why it's called a sacrifice. <laughs> you know, we got to lose sense of that word. It's not, um, you know, just, the, you know, it's just not, it's a sacrifice. It's going to be difficult. It's not going to be easy. You're going to maybe have to make lifestyle changes so that you can give generously. God has blessed our nation and our church and our people that we might give. And so I encourage you that, that your giving be a part of your, worship, your, your sacrifice as, as a priest. The fourth one that I want to talk about we see in, in Romans 12, the, the first verse there, this idea that we are to present our, our, our bodies as a living sacrifice. Our whole entire physical self. And this is where the gospel just starts to, to hurt. Okay, it's one thing to pray. It's one thing to share our faith. It's another thing to, to give. You're asking that my whole body be a living sacrifice. That's what the Christian life should be characterized. We should be known as the walking dead. Those that have died to self but are alive. We are a constant aroma to God. We are a living sacrifice. You know, we hear about suicide bombers in the Muslim world. People who are willing to strap things onto themselves and, and go into a place to blow themselves up to, for martyrdom, to make a point about what they believe. You know, martyrdom's a lot easier than being the walking dead, the living dead, a living sacrifice. That is what we are called to. There's a young family that we've had the honor to to serve with uh, these last few years, Lyndon and Gemma. They actually have ties here to Palm Bay, and so I wanted to share that with you. Their their parents, as I understand, are non-believers and aren't currently attending any fellowship, come from a Filipino background. He went to seminary at RTS, uh, but they come back and forth. They have two young daughters and as their daughters were entering into school, but as they were finishing up kindergarten in the U.S., they, they moved their family clear across the world for the sake of the gospel to daily live and give themselves for the gospel. The thing I love about this family is I see and I know the sacrifices that they've made and that they are making. 
but they love it. God has given them a heart for the, for the people, have given them a heart for the land where they are. We have vision trips that come and visit, and they kind of jokingly say, don't tell them how great it is. We're, we're loving what God has called us to. But we know they are, they are suffering. There, there is difficulty. Yes, it is out of their love of the gospel and out of a love of God that they are continuing to proclaim but it is a sacrifice, and we need people who are willing to give up their lives and go and be a living sacrifice, just like we need people here, you in your workplaces, in your schools, in your businesses, in agriculture, wherever the Lord has called you. You are the aroma of Christ calling people. And it's not something we can do on our own. It's something that we do together, for we are, as a church, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and, and He is living in us that we can be this walking dead. Finally, right? How much worse could it get? <laughs> We've heard that our spiritual sacrifices involve all these things, but even more <laughs> core we see in Psalm fifty-one seventeen. David's great confession, where he articulates and says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Or perhaps another way to say this is how Jesus said it on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. People of God, these other four spiritual sacrifices, I can tell you, I've articulated. We've seen Muslims do them better than Christians do. They pray better, they praise better, they give better, and they sacrifice more. That's a sad testimony to our community. But this one, I've never seen. A broken, contrite heart. And it, and it comes only through the Holy Spirit working in us. It comes only as we understand who the Lord Jesus is. We see it illustrated by Jesus himself between the tax collector and the Pharisee. Where is your heart? As you come into God's presence, do you understand who you are? And do you understand the mercy and the love and the forgiveness that you have received? It is one of our joys as a missionary to see people get this. A great example of that is my sister Turkan. She is working on a PhD in nanoscience. But she, she's brilliant. She knows several languages. Again, we're just like, how do you do that? She's learning English so she can better understand the gospel and relate to, to the wider Christian community. She's a single woman in a Muslim culture, and she is so gentle and so humble, so gripped by the gospel that she is willing to endure so much for the sake of the gospel. That is one of the privileges of, of our calling, is seeing the gospel really at work in people's lives. And so this is, this is a lot to ask of us. These are our spiritual sacrifices that we are, as priests, supposed to be making. And we often fail, and we don't do it well. 
So how do we do it? Well, Jesus is the one who's commissioned us to go and and to live this way. And we see that we are failing. And and, and so one of my hypotheses is, is that one of the reasons we're failing is because we don't really understand who Jesus is, who he's called us to be, that we might live as he has called us to. So as we look at our passage, let me just, again, these are things you know, people of God. Who does this passage say Jesus is? He's the living stone. Before we're called living stones, he's the living stone. Before we were rejected, he was rejected, chosen by God, precious, the cornerstone, takes away our shame. He was rejected. He is the stumbling block. He is the rock of offense. He suffered. And yet he was sinless, holy, and trusted God fully. And what does this passage say about who you are? Who are you? You are a holy priesthood, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's people. And you're sojourners. We're not there yet. This is not heaven. We are on the way. And in the meantime, God has orchestrated his mission that we, like Jesus, would be sent into the world to offer up spiritual sacrifices that the world would know who he is and would worship him. These are the types of people that we are calling and that we need to be involved in missions. As was stated earlier, missions exist because worship does not. And so we need priests who are worshiping and who are calling others to worship and are leading people in worship. We are all worship leaders. It is not just the professional staff of the church. This is one of our foundational Protestant tenets. And for the world, this 24% of the Muslim world, this 40% of the whole world to get reached, the whole church has to be mobilized. It cannot just be a few professionals. We all need to be living out our calling as priests of the living God, continually offering up spiritual sacrifices. It's not something we can do on our own. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. Our church must do it. Our denomination, our mission, we must mobilize one another. It is not something done one by one. And that is why week after week, you come to worship, to remember who God is, to remember who you are, and to remember what he has called us to do. And it's my hope and prayer that as you reflect on the mission that God has commissioned us to, that as you live out your identity as a priest and you walk in the ethic of the kingdom, that you will naturally offer up spiritual sacrifices. And it is something that can only be done in the power of the Spirit through Jesus Christ. Because when it is done for Him and through Him and to Him, 
It is for his glory. Church, be who you are. Do what you are called to do. Amen.